This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Rob Beer. Welcome back to Launchpad on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Rob Connybeer. I'm a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. If you're listening right now and you have any comments or questions during the show, give us a call. Our number here in the studio is 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Thrilled to welcome my next guest, Riley Brennan. He is a partner at Trucks. Venture Capital. Riley, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us in the studio. Rob, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, so I want to talk about why you named your firm Trucks mm-hmm. as opposed to Cars, mm-hmm. and I wonder whether it was because the URL was available or something <laughs> else, but I think it's a great name. But you have seat time in over a 1,000 test cars? Yeah, yeah, I do. And you're also a member of the Corvette C5R development team, the car that won a Le Mans Grand Tour in 2002. Um, why why were you in all these? Test yeah, cars? what does that have to do with anything regarding VC? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So I come, I came up through a, a perspective of loving cars, right? So I was one of those kids with posters on my wall of things that I love, like Volkswagen Corrados and Porsche 911s. And I started. Did you have a Lamborghini Countach? I wasn't really a Lambo guy. I was okay. more German stuff, okay. you know. So it okay. meant Volkswagens and Audis and and Porsches, and um, and so I just grew up loving just the object. And then later on in life, I worked at a couple different jobs where I started to open the aperture a little bit. And that's when I started to think about transportation as opposed to just the car and being a car enthusiast. Um, I still am a car enthusiast and I spent some time in racing. So in a previous life, I worked at GM in the racing group and I worked for the Corvette uh, factory program, which goes to the, at that point, it was called the American Le Mans series. And also went to 24 Hours Le Mans. So I got to do that race and Sebring and all that fun stuff. And that was so much fun. Um, not only because racing is great, but great race teams are like a great business. And they're usually run by a pretty uh, steely operator. In that case, a guy named Doug Feehan. And I learned so much from a year at Corvette Racing. So when you were going on this series, was there a place you liked more than others? Because Sebring is not... Sebring is, is Sebring? not the best. Yeah, well, Sebring is Sebring it, for Sebring people that might it, not be familiar with sure. Sebring. For all of our listeners in Sebring, Florida, who have just turned off uh, Sirius 111, uh, Sirius has some great establishments, I would say. Um, but the racetrack is a former airbase, and so it's pretty flat. It's not the most picturesque. Um, it's you know probably an hour and a half uh, the other side of uh, Orlando, Daytona Beach area. Um, it's in Sebring, Florida, and it's one of the kickoff races for uh, the North American racing calendar. So if you're into sports car racing, it's one of the big events, and it's 12 hours long, but it typically eats up cars like a 24-hour race because the surface is so rocky and incredible. Well, it's concrete in places, It's right? all these big, former runways. gnarly concrete slabs that just eat up tires and gearboxes. So back to a 1,000 test cars, were you driving those cars? Yeah, so in a previous life, I was... I came up through media and marketing, and I was test driving cars because I would re- I would review cars. So I worked at places like Automobile Magazine, which when I was in undergrad at University of Michigan, there are actually two car magazines in Ann Arbor. Lucky enough, I, I figured out how to get a job at one of them, and it was a motor gopher. So I got paid $7 an hour as a freshman at University of Michigan. And I would wash and gas the cars for the people who worked at this magazine. I thought, That's, <laughs> this has got to be the best way to make $7 an hour. So would they throw you the keys and then yeah. you would go get it washed? Oh, from day one. And I, you got paid 7 yeah, bucks an hour. Yeah, I thought this is You wanted to pay them money to do this. Exactly. And did you do anything crazy with cars? Of course. This? We, well, this is also the era of, it was kind of pre-digital photography. And so we had, a, in one famous incident, we had a, we had a, an account with a photo studio and we would send our rolls of film to the photo studio and they would come back to the art directors. Well, one day me and a, another guy went out and took all these pictures of us doing these lurid drifts in this Porsche Boxster, which had just come out in On a road somewhere or a parking lot? On a lot? dirt road. Okay. And so we're just, you know, totally sideways in this car and took photos and then had the brilliance to have them sent into our own office development uh, studio and they came back a couple weeks later and I received 
the knock at the door saying, Mr. Brennan, uh, did you get fired? Could you explain yourself for this? You didn't get fired. I didn't. No. I so didn't. they probably saw it. And I'm guessing how old were you at the time? 18, 19. They were probably secretly proud of you. Maybe a little bit. Maybe they were probably bit, yeah. pretty happy. They're like, OK, I guess we have yeah. to go tell them not to do that anymore. Exactly. Oh, I don't want to do that. Exactly. Okay. So that was the beginning. And, and I really still love cars like that. And I also still love racing. And one of the, I think, interesting things about particularly automated vehicles today is I love when people have the enough balance to still love the object and love the feeling of driving while also knowing that there's probably a lot more out there with automation that we can do for safety and access and things like that. So before we get into that, I want to go back to the posters you had on the wall. <laughs> what what town were you in when you were putting these posters I grew on the up wall outside here? of Detroit. So I grew up, I was born in Royal Oak, Michigan. Uh, and was raised in Birmingham, and um, and it was just you know pages out of European Car. That was one of my favorite magazines growing up, and I loved stuff like that in the eighties and nineties. You know when Volkswagen and Audi was probably at its worst uh, from a business perspective, its worst point, selling the fewest cars, having the most problems, but really had done some great cars. So my favorite car growing up is a, uh, a Mark II GTI. Um, of that era. So a Volkswagen GTI yep. stick shift. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So Did I had, you get one? So I had a Jetta, which is the closest I could come, but I, I, you know, filled it with, uh, parts from new speed and I put new, uh, conies on it and, uh, I had some fun with it. It was a really great car to have in high school. Was that your first car? It was my second car. The first car shall go unnamed. It was oh, fairly, you can't do that. fairly mundane, but I will say the, the interesting thing about that car is I flipped it for uh, like a 30% profit. So I was, that, so you made some money. Yeah. On at it. that age, I was really into like auto trader I, I and think flipping it was a cars. Yugo. That's what I think. It was close I actually think Yugo. it was a Yugo. It was close. Very okay. close. But you made yeah. 30% on yeah. it. Yeah. It was pretty good. Okay. Good IRR. For, you ever crashed a car? Oh yes. I rolled a car and I, someone told me once it's people who have rolled and people who have yet to roll a car. <laughs> um, this is obviously a totally crazy person who said this, but I got, I hate hearing that because I've totaled two cars. Yeah. I've actually been in accidents where they write off the car. Yeah, this was a write-off. I've never rolled one, so this I really don't roll. know if I like hearing this. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't great, and it, I was young. I was probably twenty-one, um, and it definitely told me uh, definitely taught me a lot about uh, maybe my limitations, and it, it also made me think about if I do drive um, cars in that type of way, I need to do it on a racetrack, and that in this case, I. I'd done it basically on an entrance ramp to a freeway. It was a course correction for me in terms of driving. <laughs> and now, as my anyone will attest, I'm the what world's most What kind of car was it? Ever. That was a Mazda 6. Okay. So a sedan. I mean, not the most exciting car, but uh, that day was a little exciting. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is one of those things you can do is you can go around a cloverleaf. You could go around exactly. it for a half hour if you wanted. Exactly. What was the moment? I have to ask this. What was the moment that you were going around the cloverleaf and you realized that it was all going wrong a tank slapper you know the overcorrection it's always and this is probably a good lesson for many things in life but it, it's almost like the first moment the car started to lose traction it's what i did to overcorrect that really put me in a a bad spot and so then the I slide could, wasn't so bad yeah. it was the holy crap yeah i have to fix this i have to fix it yeah. and you overfix exactly. it okay. exactly okay and all of a sudden we were rolling and uh thankfully we were belted wait how many people in the car myself and one other person a friend of mine sounds like a woman was yeah. it a woman yeah woman. so you were impressing somebody well i i don't know i don't know if mission accomplished in that case <laughs> there was definitely an impression i right. think you there could, was an impression you left could right say right okay so if you're just tuning in i'm rob conibier and you're listening to launchpad on sirius xm 111 business radio powered by the wharton school i'm here in the studio right now with Riley Brennan, a partner at Trucks Venture Capital. So back to the name of Trucks. Mm -hmm. Maybe talk for a moment about Trucks. What is Trucks? Why Trucks? Yeah. Uh, so there's a, I think going back a couple of years, my partners, Jeff and Kate and I, um, started to see entrepreneurs who were trying to raise money for these great automotive ideas. But you were talking 2010, 2011, a lot of the investment at that point in Northern California was 
described when you talked about anything automotive related, it was described as a clean tech startup, which we thought was a mischaracterization. And a lot of the clean tech investors had kind of rolled up their bags and and said, I'm not going to do any more new investment. And when we say clean tech, these are people that were investing in solar panels and new forms of everything in that category, right? And, And they put things like Tesla, probably correctly at the time, in that bucket. Oh, because they were electric cars. Exactly. So Not any, the autonomous piece, the electric piece. Exactly. And the, the autonomous piece was still, I mean, just really a glimmer in the eye of, of a few researchers. So it was really anything automotive was, I think, incorrectly put in that bucket. So we said, why don't we become that funding source so that if there's an early stage founder with a great idea in the transportation category, we should be the people that help get them off the ground. And there are not a lot of people out there doing that. Um, and we have this unusual Rolodex full of automotive uh, contacts and people and things that we could kind of help our founders with. So let's do that. And the name was, in our mind, let's pick something that's vaguely automotive. Um, and honestly, my partner Jeff and I, we believe that it's the first word that we said um, on planet Earth was was truck or trucks. I think I said car. But yeah. It sounds like you said truck. Truck, 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 yeah. truck. Well, my, so I have a one and a half year old son and I think his, I can't really tell what his first word is because they're kind of running together. But I think that one of them is definitely Maybe truck. it's pretzel or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> it could be. It could very well be. But so that's the origin. It's not too exciting. Um, we don't actually uh, invest only in things on truck. So we have a number of investments related to trucking and logistics. But we invest in stuff that's decidedly not a truck, too. Um, but we're all about transportation. But it's really meant in some ways to be fun, whimsical, yeah. but also around the idea of something that hauls the cargo, hauls exactly. the freight, does the hard work. And what trucks are also a special purpose, right? So, you know, I, I'm reading these truck books now with my son, and it's funny how many great <laughs> trucks. See the truck. That, well, see the truck go uphill, downhill. Yeah, and how many have a unique design you know so there's a garbage truck and there's a street sweeper and there's all these things that are really purpose-built and there's something cool about that as well that we really like well it's interesting when you got it started when you started trucks i remember when we first met we were introduced to your partner yep jeff shocks and it was before people had really started to think about self-driving vehicles mm-hmm. yeah it was it was that was uh, probably 2014 15 time frame and one uh, i i would it say wasn't that really that long ago that nobody that was ago. talking about self-driving cars right and there were a few notable mobility investors i would say uh there's a a fund called Fontanalis, which was started by bill ford junior in detroit um some years ago and they they did a lot of great early mobility investing, but the category of automated vehicles as a place to invest was really, that was new. And so one of the things that had yet to happen, and trust me, a lot of people told us no when we started raising for fun, was that there wasn't a big outcome yet. And what happened in in the spring of 2016 was that big event, which is when GM bought Cruise for reportedly a lot of money. And Well, the number everybody threw around was around you know, a billion it right? was yeah it was dr yeah, evil money exactly <laughs> it was extended pinky finger dr evil money and uh you know as it turns out it wasn't actually exactly that price but it was in the ballpark of, of that and it was one of those things that i think a lot of people realize wow so there are all these major oems and suppliers and they have significant gaps that they're going to try to fill um, it's likely we're going to see more things like this and so my partners jeff and kate were actually investors in cruise and when we were putting together our fund, it was much easier to tell that story because we said, look, you know, this has happened and there are other great technologies that need to be developed. And we have this unusual skill set to help bring to market. And so one of our big exits recently was a company called Newtonomy, which Delphi bought um, in the fall of 2017. So um, that's what we do. We try to pick out great founders who are changing transportation and support them with money, but also support them with, with help. And I, frankly, I think our utility is really in the first 18 months when companies get two or three years old and they're through a series B of financing, I'm less useful to them. Our sweet spot is really seed. That first year and a half is where we do most of our work. And I want to always keep to our knitting there. All right. So I'm going to ask you a question that investors always hate to hear, but I'm going to ask anyways. What are your favorite companies in the portfolio? Mm -hmm. Because I'm sure you love them all. You help them all. Yeah. I'll I'll give you um, a couple in different categories because I think it will spark some interesting discussion. One is uh, a company that's doing automated commercial trucks called Starsky Robotics. And 
one of the fundamental beliefs they have is that there's so much that can be done not only to automate the vehicle, but also to bring humans within that loop to help with some of the systems of automation like teleoperation. So they believe that if you were to wait for full automation in every category at every time of the day or what's sometimes called level five, that could be a pretty, in, by some measures, pretty far away. And so they break up a, a trip with a commercial truck into multiple segments, and part of that they automate, and part of that they, they bring a human in to control the truck remotely. Okay. And it's so a you very just elegant... pantomime moving the steering wheel. Yeah. Is this like having a trucker sit at an Xbox, and instead of the Xbox just being hooked up to the Xbox sure. and a screen, it's actually hooked up to a truck yeah so remotely that could be a hundred miles away partially yes so there's a there's a low speed version where direct teleoperation makes a lot of sense and then there's these other instance incidents where you'd want to maybe have a remote um, operator send a command to the truck and the command could be something like pull over the shoulder restart the engine uh merge into traffic and so for that, that's still teleoperation where there's actually a live human remotely. They're just not sitting in the truck. And when you do that, um, particularly in trucking, you can do some really interesting things with the economics of the business. You can run the trucks 24 hours a day. Um, it's a really a fundamental change of commercial trucking and moving freight, which is really interesting. Um, the other company I think is really kind of fundamental is um, it's called Zendrive. And Zendrive was started by uh, an Android engineer named Jonathan Mattis, um, really, really smart guy who had this idea of, you know, why don't we use all the sensors in the smartphone to actually pick up driving analytic data? And although at first it was, um, that was true, um, one of the things that over the years they, they realized is that your use of a cell phone in a vehicle actually is highly correlated to your risk as a driver. <laughs> so isn't isn't just simply knowing that you're you're braking accelerating, but actually if you're a you know commercial driver on a on a Oh, route, I thought you meant whether you use it or not. Well oh I see. Well that could be one case. But actually when you're when you're on a on a trip, um let's say you're you're working for a fleet and you use your phone actually when you're driving, that's actually gonna be correlated to your risk as a driver. So um, they can do some really interesting things with knowing how risky those drivers are if they're using their phone a lot and have a ton of great analytic data. And now they're doing over a billion miles of driving data every five or six days. So they have just an unbelievable amount of data they're pulling in about driving analytics, which is really that's, interesting. That's pretty amazing. Any yeah. other companies, or these are the two top favorites? Well, I'll give you an example of our most recent one, which I believe is Sometimes it wouldn't seem typical for what we typically invest in. And when I say typically invest, it's, you know, the companies that we've had success in, like, uh, you know, Newtonomy and Nauto. These are companies that are fundamentally software and robotics companies. The new company that we just did um, a number of weeks ago is called SIVA. And their point of view is that, um, you know, these vehicles are going to have a lot more sensors on them. And if the sensors can't see because they're dirty... Um, the vehicles aren't going to be able to run. And so in their mind, an automated vehicle is like a Formula One car. You want to keep the vehicle constantly on the road in high utilization. You don't want to waste any time in the pits. If you do that, the economic model of this world might it might not pencil out because these early AVs are something like $300,000, right? So they, they need to be mostly fleet-owned, and they need to be on the road all the time. So they do something really simple. They clean things like windshields and they clean sensor units. They do this through very pragmatic things like warm washer fluid, but they also have you know hydrophobic coatings that can coat a sensor so you don't even have to plumb lines out to it and spray it. So it's like Rain-X on your it's car. It's like basically a, a Rain-X portfolio of ideas that all are around visibility. And it's in is their it a mind, product sale or is it a service they provide? It's product and service. So this is one of the challenges, I think, and we just wrote about this in something that we're going to publish next week. Um, one of the risks for this company, which is interesting for us to chew on as early stage investors, is they have to develop multiple kinds of products in different categories, things as disparate as you know, uh, a wiper blade and a hydrophobic coating made of materials. And the risk is, what if you actually spread your R&D budget out too thin? Um, you could crater the company. Um, however, if you don't develop enough products, you might not actually be able to get traction and beat out the competition. So that that balance of, of building the portfolio is really difficult to do. And it's going to be one of the key risks for the company they need to solve over the next 18 months. Are there any companies out there you look at in the new 
automotive startup universe that you're not in that you wish you were in? Yeah, uh, sure. There's a company that um, I've always found to be really fascinating called, well, there's two that I'll note. One is called Nexar. Um, Nexar is an Israeli company that uses just any commodity smartphone pointed out the front windshield. And whatever phone you're running, they are running their software and they're basically looking out the front windshield and they're looking for bad behavior drivers. So let's say someone cuts you off in front of you they essentially will tag that driver in their system and say, we think this is a high-risk driver. And the benefit is that somewhere, you know, two weeks from now, that same driver could be driving behind you or me on the freeway, and they'll give us an alert and say, hey, there's a person that's coming up behind you that we think is a high-risk driver. You should move one lane over to the left, et cetera. Whoa. So it's kind of a— if That's you, weird. In some ways, it's big brother. But on the other hand, yeah, I mean— you would like to know that somebody that's not a safe driver is coming up around you. Absolutely. Um, so there's some really sophisticated uh, computer vision that's run on a commodity piece of hardware, which is really neat. Um, I've always thought that's a fascinating company. Um, the other one is a company called Transit Screen, um, which is run by uh, a bunch of really interesting people in D.C. and New York. And what they do is they basically put a monitor up in a place of business, whether it's the lobby of a apartment building or outside of a Starbucks, and they tell you um, through a very easy-to-read format when the next Uber or train or bus is available. And it's sort of a master um, God view of all the transit options you have in front of you. And the interesting part— Wait, this is a screen on the wall? It's just a screen. So it's real simple. It's kind of like just a status board, but it's all your transit options. And it's an interesting business model. They— install these in things like new apartment buildings and the new apartment building people love love to have these options so that they can push some of their um dwellers into things other than personally owned vehicles and two the the retail establishments like it because people tend to dwell around these signs and so if you put it next to starbucks the footfall in a starbucks will actually be higher so it's a combination of kind of using data from different modes of transport plus a little bit of what makes an advertising business run um, it's not maybe not core to the truck's philosophy, but there's something really special about that company that I think is going to be worth something um, valuable to to a big player one day or maybe just stay independent. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Connybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm here in the studio right now with Riley Brennan, who's a founding partner at Trucks, a seed stage venture capital fund for entrepreneurs changing the future of transportation and focused on entrepreneurs that are building those companies. So you mentioned earlier the idea of different levels of autonomy. Could you just level set what does that mean? What are those basic levels of autonomy that people talk about in the industry? Yeah, I'll level set by saying that the levels are not right. And they're they're actually a poor... Not perfectly defined? Well, they're not perfectly defined, and they're kind of a poor... um, they seem to indicate because you move from zero to five that as you move up linearly, there's um, kind of a, a nice pace to that. And in fact, they shouldn't really be described as zero through five. Um, I will describe the beginning and end of the journey and then talk about why it's confused in the middle. At level five, you can assume that a vehicle will be able to operate in all conditions and the uh, and the human, if there's a human sitting in it, doesn't need to actually perform any of the operator duties, so the machine handles everything. So when you talk about level five, that's what people think of as the dream, the nirvana. You get in the car, you tell it where you want to go, you pass out because you've had a few mm-hmm. too many drinks, it takes you there. Sure, and there's no steering wheel, no pedals. You couldn't actually control the vehicle. Even if you wanted uh, to. Even if you wanted to. And, and, and the, by design, the vehicle should be able to do that because you know after you get dropped off, it has to sort of do a deadhead trip where... There's nobody in the vehicle, so it needs to be able to control itself the whole time. Okay. and That's it, one end of the spectrum. That's five. And then at zero, you have, you know, your race car, right? So my, you, my Miata. Yeah, exactly. It has a stick shift. Right. It has manual brakes, no yeah. ABS. Yeah, exactly. So you're talking about manual a totally steering. manual experience. And, you know, right now we see companies that are kind of in the middle. You have uh, autopilot systems, like from companies like Tesla and now there's a new General Motors system called Super Cruise, and there's a Daimler system. They're either level two or level three, or sometimes they are called level two and level three. And what those systems mean is that basically the human should be monitoring these 
more automated versions of control. So the vehicle might actually be, be able to do things like lane keep assist on a freeway. So it keeps you in the lane and keep you in front of, um, keep you in traffic so you don't hit the car in front of you. But you as the operator still need to have ability to come back and take control of the vehicle. And it's pretty confusing because different companies have different definitions of of what they put out there in the world. And even a name like autopilot, in my mind, is a confusing word because a lot of people, as you've seen on YouTube, have taken it to mean, oh, this is fully self-driving. And it actually is more of a driver assistance system than it is a robot driving system. So it's really kind of the spectrum. You have level four, it's closer to Nirvana. Level one is a little more, you know, it's like analog brakes and basic stability Exactly, Yep. So it's confusing. It's what we have now. There's probably going to be a new system of measuring this that we don't have yet. Um, but maybe all systems are meant to be a little bit wrong. So, you know, think about the way that movies are rated, too. There's a level of interpretation for what makes a PG-13 versus what makes an R, right? And that's what the AV system is like, too. There's kind of, you can look at some examples and say, I'm not sure this act exactly falls in this bucket. So to bring it together for this portion of the show, level five Nirvana, when do we get that? Uh, I would say level five Nirvana. We're talking about all conditions. Um, on take any, me to on Tahoe, any road. Take me in the mountains. Drive on sure. snow. Do everything. This is an important discussion for us to have as people who invest in these companies. I would say we're no earlier than ten years away from that. However, I think this is an important distinction when you fund these companies to ask the decision to make the decision are we actually an unstructured company that's going to go after level 5 we'll take you to any address to do that i probably need all the sensors on the roof um i need to be able to travel at all these different speeds the vehicle needs to be crash worthy if you make that decision that's a very capital intensive business that probably only google billions of dollars billion, literally billions uh, tens of billions that you need you better be google or you better be a um you know toyota or an uber or something like that um, where you can can find, I think, some significant value is level four. You can have a structured route. So you're saying, I'm going to pick this particular roadway, and I'm only going to offer service in this roadway under these particular conditions. And that example... So constrained. Exactly, constrained. And that is, from from my perspective, very much near term. I'm talking about the next 12 months. There are examples of companies that are deploying, some in pilots and some in real deployments, um, where they're doing level four structured autonomy and seeing significant benefits in the economics for doing so. So I'm not, I, I, I'm still, I don't think we need level five autonomy to, um, to have the George W. The Bush benefits. mission yeah. accomplished banner. I think it's <laughs> that there's actually a level yeah. four um, economic benefit that's, that also has some real safety benefits. So we'll start to see a lot of it functionally. Yep. We just won't see it in all circumstances. Right. Great. Well, we need to take a short break. Stay with us when we're back. We're going to find out from Riley how he went from being 18 in Ann Arbor, washing, fueling up, and drifting cars for <laughs> Automobile Magazine. How did he end up as a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley? I'm Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, and you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Launchpad on SiriusXM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Rob Conybeer. I'm a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. So I'm here in the studio right now with my friend, Riley Brennan. Riley is pretty understated about this, but he is actually one of the best connected people in the startup ecosystem for people building startups around the future of transportation, whether it's automotive, trucks, and the supporting technologies. So to get there, and you have this seed stage fund with really a, a, a really widespread, interesting portfolio. How did you get there from what we were talking about before, putting fuel in, washing cars yeah. for Automobile Magazine sure. in Ann Arbor, yeah. well, Michigan? The, uh, the Automobile Magazine experience as a young kid was to walk into a room filled with really creative people who were all day long interacting with the auto industry. So there would be an automotive CEO coming in and they would be test driving cars and getting to look at the next Corvette and things like that. And I just thought to be around the automotive industry is really fun. 
I have to be around this my so whole life. So you just had this drive, like, I just, wanna do it. I've gotta be in, Running I gotta do desire. what they're doing, exactly. Okay. And um, so I, I came up through media marketing, I spent some time on the marketing side, um, but I always loved media, and I always loved the fact that you could kind of um, see these things come to fruition in the from the R&D phase all the way to production. It was just really fun to see that happen. From the media world. Yeah, and just getting to meet engineers and all that stuff. And um, so I thought around the time of maybe the the Great Recession, you could see that the media industry was actually starting to um, to show its age. And I remember thinking, I don't know if for me, even though I love the car business, if media is the best long-term plan for me. Um, and so my wife and I decided, let's move to California. So when you say media, where were you? So at the time, I was at AOL. So AOL was just breaking off from Time Warner. This is in um, sort of 2009, 10-ish. Okay, and you were an editor for AOL Autos. Exactly. Okay. Yep. So I was all, at that point, I was um, running the AOL Autos thing from the editorial perspective, and I really loved the auto business, but parts of media were not that much fun to me. And so my wife and I uh, said, let's just pack up the, um, the truck and yeah, the U-Haul and move to California. And so we moved from Detroit to California in the end of 2010. Um, and we really did so because we so thought- you literally just decided to go. Let's do it. Okay. Uh, no real plan. And um, that was one of the, probably the most pivotal moments of my life because um, it forced me when we moved to- think about my network and I started to meet with interesting people. One of them, one of the people I met with a lot, maybe two people. Um, one was a guy named Diego Rodriguez from IDEO and a guy named David Kelly from IDEO. And they're both car people. They just love cars of all types. And for people that aren't familiar with IDEO, it is one of the most famous design consultancies in the world. Exactly. And uh, designed the mouse, designed a lot of these sure. things for Apple and yeah. others. Designed a lot of stuff for vehicles and wide, interesting network. And the founder of IDEO, David Kelly, also started this great program at Stanford called the D-School, the Design School. How'd you connect with him? Uh, through my previ through previous life. So this is, you know, the great lesson is, you know, sometimes your network in the early stages, some of those people you don't think are actually core to what you're doing will pop up later on, right? Uh, so while you were an editor at AOL Autos and doing the media type of yep. stuff, you got to know these people. Exactly. And um, I started re reading, actually, Diego has this great blog, and I started reading his blog. And when I moved to California, I started to spend more time with them. And David so Kelly... So did you email him and say, hey, I've moved I'm out here. to California. He's <laughs> like, knock, oh, knock, I guess knock. we'll get together. I yeah. enjoy my conversations with exactly. you. Exactly. Let's talk cars. Where would you guys go to talk cars? Just coffee in Palo Alto and things like that. What shop? Uh, Phil's, I think. Phil's? Yeah. Okay. Phil's on Forest. Okay. And um, Who usually gets there first, you or Diego? Me. You? Yeah, well, Diego at Diego that point... Diego a little late. Does worked, he show up late? He worked right across the street from there, but I think I'd always have to get in there first and then text him and tell him I was there. Okay. But I won't hold that against him or talk about it on the radio. Um, so I... He's at, sitting in Phil's and yeah, talking about... Talking about, hey, you know, what are you guys working on? And I was not really sure what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to stay in the car business, as odd as it sounds, in San Francisco. And at that point, Stanford was just starting to put together the pieces of all these great automotive things they had going on. And David Kelly said, hey, there's this new thing at Stanford that um, needs someone from the outside to come in and, and help some of the, the management of it. And it's called REVS. And it's going to be responsible for funding and supporting a lot of really unusual automotive ideas. And I thought, wow, that sounds like really interesting to me. And so we talked about it for about six months, and I basically joined Stanford at the end of that year. Based to, on this introduction from David from Kelly. From David Kelly, exactly. And, and he's a founder of IDEO, right? Founder of IDEO, founder of the Stanford D School. And um, so those two guys were really important for me. And I went to Stanford, and Stanford, for for me especially, um, having applied there in the fall of, of uh, 1996, and they told me that I should be going to the University of Michigan. Um, it was so you didn't get in. Yeah, so I didn't get in. Okay, and uh, and it was you know basically an eye opener for me in terms of not only the smart people on campus, but also the fact that so many people would come in and out of campus. You know, whether it's CEOs or um, politicians or leaders, and I thought, wow, this is a really fascinating place to learn stuff. And I'm going to dedicate myself to learning different parts of the auto industry that I didn't really know at the time, and so. I spent a number of years there, not only in this sort of program management role, but also teaching within the D School and the School of Engineering. 
Who did you interview with to get this job? David Kelly. David Kelly. Oh, so yeah. he, it was his idea, but you also interviewed him. Exactly. So you didn't know that your conversations after It was you, like a, a trial run for an interview, right? Was he late, too, when you'd meet with David him? David Kelly's... Uh, he's a pretty busy guy. I usually had to go to his office, okay. and so he's usually just sitting there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you walked in. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then there was another guy at the time uh, named Cliff Nass, who's this famous Stanford professor who's since passed away. And those were the two people that were really critical in, in that sort of phase. And so I got Stanford and I started teaching. I started doing fundraising. And I started meeting all these great researchers. Some of them were becoming entrepreneurs. And that's when the light bulb went off where I said, wow, I really think that what I really need to be doing you now is helping these really smart people get their idea off the ground. And whether that's, hey, I'm starting a new research project or I'm starting a company of some sort, that's what I'm here to do. And so... When I left Stanford, I decided I'm going to start this fund with my friend Jeff and Kate, and um, that's that's when Truck started. And so for me, it's kind of a interesting, you know, course through the auto industry where some 20 years into autos, I finally realized what I'm actually really great at, which is this particular piece, helping someone from the very early stage. Uh, build an idea in the automotive world. But it and took a winding road to get there. Exactly. It sounds like exactly. where you just really, you have to jump into it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That I think one of the best parts about maybe um, that I can say about the auto business for me was it's always had a lot of great people who have helped me along the way. And, you know, some of the contacts I developed when I worked at GM in the early 2000s end up popping up for me later on and helping us get one of our first um, big investors in trucks, you know, just kind of unusual ways that the world is articulated. And uh, all those people come from me having 20 years in the auto industry. I remember visiting you early on before you left. You were thinking about leaving Revs, but maybe describe the facility. Yeah. That you worked at at sure. Stanford because I think it was along one of these roads, not the. Well, go ahead and yeah. describe. Stanford it. has this. Well, space on Stanford campus is precious, and so, you know, and I would describe most Stanford professors as having a lot of opportunity to do things like build a new lab and build a building. Um, so it was unusual and indicative that they let Stanford build this great automotive garage. And so on the Stanford campus, right near Sand Hill Road, is this beautiful lab, which is called Vale, uh, the Volkswagen Automotive Innovation Lab. And that space has six or seven bays. And you walk in, and there's this big roll-up door. And inside, you have these really unusual uh, automated vehicles. Some are race cars. There's a DeLorean in there, which is automated and drifting. And students, grad students and undergrad working on stuff. And people from industry coming in and it's out. It's a beautiful meetings. space. It's a beautiful garage. It's one of those, I'm sure you've probably dreamed about doing a dream garage at some point in your life. I have too. And I've always thought that the Stanford garage is one of the way, one of the places I'd love to copy. Um, and so I spent basically all my time there. And what an unbelievable place to learn about new things in the auto industry. Were you nervous when you went to teach your first class? Uh, I was. And I made the mistake at first of teaching a three-credit uh, three course, which is... Um, a pretty high workload, not only for the students, but for the instructors. Really? So I did it. For you? Oh, yeah, because you're talking about multiple hours per week. Um, and a, an idea that had been done for me was the first time. And so uh, I've learned over the years to kind of calibrate on what I should be doing as preparation. And I still teach at Stanford. So one of my classes that I, I'll start in about a month is called Mobility Entrepreneurship. And it's 10 different founders who have started something really interesting in the automotive industry. So this quarter we have the founders of Zooks, the CEO of Waymo. Um, we have unbelievable founders coming in and it's all off the record fireside chat. And it makes and you think- And Waymo is the Google effort for people exactly. who are familiar with it. So yeah. this is a multi-billion dollar funded startup. Exactly. exactly. So that one will put in quotes. quotes. Right. So it, just think to yourself, wow, I'd love to be a student in that room. Um, and I'm, my, I'm just lucky to be there as the moderator but it's a great discussion. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Connybeer. You're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm here in the studio right now with Riley Brennan, a longtime car fan, car veteran, and founder of Trucks Venture Capital. So what's the, other than rolling a car that we talked about in the, the first part of this show, You've also gone close to 170 miles an hour. What's it like to drive a car at that speed? 
That was a basically a Can Am car. So in the what's a Can Am so car? So in the in the history of motorsport, there are a couple of. It seems like motorsport moves through these windows, kind of like innovation does, where for three or four or five or sometimes seven years, a particular type of racing car in a particular type of series seems to have a lot of great innovation. And there was one series in particular where it was kind of a run what you brung series where you could kind of bring anything you want out to the track. So you could go all out. Total innovation. The rule book was very flexible. And <laughs> flexible. Yeah, malleable. It sounds like it's very, very thin. Exactly. Too. Okay. And this particular car uh, was built by a company called Chaparral Cars in Midland, Texas. And famously... Oh, Texas, of course. Yeah. Okay. Famously right. by, by a Texas oil man who wanted to do racing and was quite good at it and had a backdoor relationship with General Motors, who at the time said they wouldn't be involved in any motorsport, but were giving engines to this group and some engineering uh, talent. And one of the cars he built was a car called the Chaparral 2E, which had this very high wing on it. So if you can imagine a race car with a, a wing that's probably four or five feet off the, the back of the vehicle. And it was actually, an uh, you can move the foil. So it, when you're sitting in the driver's seat, you had a third pedal, not for a clutch, but actually to to trim out the the airfoil. The big wing. The wing. Okay. So so you could really kind of figure out um when you were cornering um when you wanted that wing completely trimmed and when you wanted more of it so you could corner effectively. So those cars weren't that as is fast. Crazy. Yeah. What time frame was this again? This is sixties and seventies, right? Okay. Well this car particular sixties, but um Can Am was that kind of golden era. So it was all out. All and you out. drove one of these close to 170 miles? I drove it, yeah, exactly, up at a retired Air Force base in Michigan called Las Coda. Oh, so a straight line. Straight line. So, And I didn't bend the car or myself, so I considered it a success. So moving forward, do you still do crazy things with cars or a little less of it? Just on Gran Turismo. I okay. think on my days of, of driving. Or it's all on the Xbox. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I know you don't like to ride along either unless you know it's don't, a professional I driver. don't do ride alongs unless it's like my friend Jer Hildebrand or somebody like that. Okay. Um, or somebody maybe you. Maybe you. I would do yeah. it. Yeah. You're starting to consider it. Yeah. You're like, okay, a little more confidence. Yeah. But like Chris Heiser or Novo, no, I'm not going for a ride along with him. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Chris has been on the show, yeah. by the way. Chris is an automotive entrepreneur. So Tesla. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Tesla. What do you think about Tesla? Uh, it's amazing that, you know, in the automotive industry, there's so many difficult things that um, one of the things that I think has been most difficult for every brand is to create demand. And most automotive companies are bad at marketing. And so one of the things that Tesla has done, uh, which is really remarkable, is they've they've created an incredible amount of demand and they're such brilliant marketers. And they might not market in the way that maybe traditional Madison Avenue thinks about, like billboards and you know magazine ads, but they know how to market what it means to be a Tesla owner and what it means to walk into a Tesla experience. And so that's interesting. You're not saying it's electrical. You're no, starting not at with all. it's marketing, it's the brand affinity and yeah. what people really want it's, in an automotive experience. Exactly. And when you talk to a Tesla owner, it's rare that the first thing they say is it's an electric car. They always tell you it's an incredible car, right? And um, so paradoxically, they've solved some of the hardest things you could ever um, sort of put up on the board is what would you want to do if you created a car company? You'd have to say, God, creating the demand and creating the marketing is one of the most difficult things. Look at Toyota and GM. They spend billions of dollars trying to figure that out, and they're not great at it, right? So they're great at this unusual thing. Where they tend to fall down, obviously, is in areas of the automotive world that are already well-solved, like production. So the automotive industry has a ton of excess capacity for production, and there are these huge companies out there, one of them happening to be uh, Magna, that will totally build a car for you. So you can design a vehicle and send it to Magna, and they'll print the whole thing, put the badge on it for you, and send it to your dealerships. And and for people that aren't familiar with Magna, this is a company that in terms of production volumes and revenue and these is as big as any of the biggest sure. automakers in the world. Absolutely. But nobody's heard of them. Exactly. It's kind of the Foxconn of the automotive industry to take an Apple analogy, right? Um, so Tesla, oddly enough, could use those resources. They could um, could turn over production to other companies. They choose not to do it. Um, they choose to do it themselves. So it's one of those um, it doesn't seem to be working that well, though, when you look at the scaling right now. So why do you think right. they're doing it? Just playing the long game to get there so they can own the full stack? That's a that's a great uh, take. I don't know. 
the real answer is I don't know why someone hasn't said, why don't you turn over production for at least a little bit of this particular vehicle to a company like Magna or in China or SAC. For three years. And then you can phase it out And maybe you lose 4 or 5% of of the gross margin on those products. But, hey, you could move through that that order book really quickly. Um, So it's a company that, on the one hand, would break your heart because – They've they figured out so many of these wonderful things that everyone else has a difficult time achieving. They've done it, and then they totally fall down on the production over-promising and under-delivering. I love the way that people talk about Teslas and the way that the marketing comes together and the storytelling, et cetera. Now, I don't own one. It's unlikely I'll ever own one because, to me, it feels like driving a really awesome golf cart. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the, You don't golf, do you? I used to. My Most- favorite. My favorite part was driving the golf cart around. <laughs> I would always be the one driving the golf cart. <laughs> I want to see how fast it would go down the hill. I'm like, oh, this thing is governed. It can't go ridiculously yeah. fast. But but anyways, the zero to 60 stuff with Tesla is really amazing because at least in the U.S., that's all anybody thinks about is the zero to 60. It is. And the other remarkable thing is they've kind of made the zero to 60 metric not matter for the people who it used to matter the most for. So and when you say, say metric, you mean the measurement. Exactly. So the, the Lamborghinis of the world and the supercars of the world, most of those can't even hold a candle to the Palo Alto Camry, otherwise known as the Model S Tesla, right? Yes. And so they've taken all the things that these supercars for $400,000 can't even do as well of a job at, and that's phenomenal. Yeah, it, it's amazing. Well, zero to 60 is the one thing that when... Somebody feels a little crazy, mm-hmm. they can get on the on-ramp, and they can go 0 to 60, and yeah. then they let off the accelerator about 65 to 70 because they're a little scared. Or even that mid-range thrust, that 40 to 60, right? Yeah. So this is an interesting thing to think about for vehicles, particularly with congestion. Um, you know, we, we even you know here in the Bay Area, whether you're going down to Palo Alto or something, or San Jose, you run into all this congestion. So how can you design vehicles where even if you're traveling at, at sort of low speeds, you can still feel a dynamism to them and you can still feel exciting. That's what's interesting about cars like the GTI or the Mini Cooper or something that in that kind of mid-range, that 30 to 50 miles an hour, for that brief moment, it feels like you're in a sports car, right? Yeah. You don't have to go 200 miles an hour. You don't have to be at a racetrack. Exactly. You don't have to be doing that. You get that thrill, that incite- yeah. excitement. Exactly. And That's, Tesla does deliver that. Absolutely. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Cunnybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm here in the studio right now with Riley Brennan, a founding partner, general partner at Trucks, a seed stage venture capital firm that is focused on the future of transportation. So speaking of the future of transportation, you you write a newsletter, you assemble a newsletter. Could you talk about that newsletter? Sure. Uh, well, a number of years ago, I started, there were you know, research reports and patents and things that I would kind of try to consume every week. And it was hard for me to to make sense of that. And there was an increasing number of deals and investments. And so I said, just internally, I'd like to put together a compendium of all the crazy stuff that's happening in the car world for related to automotive technology. And this was probably the fall of 15. So this is before it was really crazy. But at the time, I thought I need to get make sense of this. And, you know, everybody has a preferred learning method. Mine is I always need to read and then write a little bit about it. And so I put together this small list for just, I think it was three friends. And I sent it to them on a Sunday and I said, I think I'm going to do this every week. And they started forwarding it to other friends. And so it's become this thing that I do every week. And it's read by not a lot of people, but frankly, the people who read it um, need, they need this information. So it's really an insider it is very insider. There's no advertising for it. You basically found out about it because someone else sent it to you and said, this is really valuable. Where do you find it online? Uh, so on our website, trucks.vc, and um, you can sign up there. And you know the people who read it are the analysts and the investors, but also the CEOs of car companies and you know companies like Uber and Lyft. Um, so many of their engineers read it and things like that. So it's a fascinating group of people who read it. And not only do I get the benefit of putting it together, but then usually on Monday morning, I get a bunch of replies from all these smart people who say like, hey, you should think about this. And have you read this particular you know, white paper or this research report? And so it's kind of fun for me to do. And I do it every week in the, the vein of 
how you'd maybe describe a martial arts practice in that it feels good for me to do it every week. And if I don't well, do it, you have to do it every week right? <laughs> or people eat matters, right? It, you have to do it every week. And I get so much benefit from doing it. I even, you know, do it on, on things like Christmas and weeks where it's difficult logistically to handle it, but I, I make sure I do it. Yeah. The discipline of yeah. doing it. Sounds like it's almost like exercising. It is going yeah. out, going for a bike ride, yep. going for a run, et cetera. So we have a few minutes here. Outside of autonomous transportation, what do you think are one or two of the key trends going forward that people don't appreciate that's coming like a freight train in transportation? Well, one thing is I believe this notion of uptime and high utilization is really important. So as long as these vehicles are really expensive, and they're going to be really expensive for a long time, these automated vehicles, you need to figure out ways to keep them in high utilization. And so that could be software systems. It could be pragmatic things like cleaning supplies. It could be the way they get fueled. Um, These are all, that whole category of uptime to me is a really important concept, the uptime economy almost. And um, so I think there'll be a lot of great ideas there. I also think that logistics is going to get totally reformatted. And not only the big uh, pallet level and truckload level. Like it's just like freight moving stuff yeah. around by logistics. Right. Okay. So, so Starsky, as an example, is moving things like the full truckload almost of, of freight. But I also think that the small sort of packetization of logistics is going to go through another wave of innovation. And we saw a couple of interesting crowdsource companies in that space. But um, there's some new things that I'm really excited about there. And um, so, yeah, there's so many different categories of of transport I love. I also think for us, we're learning more about train and the third axis of of things that fly um, that we'll probably spend more time in. Oh, the flying cars. Flying, when do we get the something? flying car? Or do you think it's a pipe train anytime soon? Today. today. Oh, yeah. we have it today. Yeah, exactly. It's called a helicopter. Okay. Yeah. It's a little expensive, yeah, though. Yeah, it's a little expensive. People tend to crash those a lot. So I have a question for you. We have a minute left. What's your favorite automaker in the world? Uh, my favorite Legacy. Auto- you can't sure. say Tesla. Sure. Uh, I've always loved Honda. Honda. Uh, I love Honda for its focus on engines and its focus on motorsports. Okay. And there's something about the really well-designed Hondas seem to have a level of engineering sophistication even when they're really lightweight. So even a car, like a simple car, like a Honda Fit, the way that the doors come together and the way that some of the pieces are engineered, to me, is really quite fascinating. It's interesting. Two of my favorite cars, my first new car was a Honda. It was a Honda Civic DX. I actually bought it after a summer working at Ford Motor Company. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, sorry, Ford Motor Company. And I love that car. It had a great motor. And then I had an Integra GSR, and it had a motor. One of the just best. Fun and sound. There was one of those on Bring a Trailer car. last week. You should have yeah, bought. Yeah, I probably should have held on to the one that I had. I drove yes. that one across the country wow. actually. But Riley, thanks again for joining us. You talked about where people can go for your newsletter to trucks.vc. Where can they follow you on Twitter? At Riley Brennan on Twitter. So at R E I L L Y B R E N N A N. Okay. Thanks great. so much, Rob. Yeah, Riley. Thanks again. It's been a great time. Absolutely. So that just about does it for today's show. Thank you all for joining us on the show. Be sure to follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio111. To follow me, I blog regularly at 280.vc, or you can follow me on Twitter at Rob Connybeer. I'd like to thank today's guests again. We had Dan Nevius from Analytical Space and, once again, Riley Brennan of Trucks.vc. Thanks also to our producer, Dana Cash, assistant producer, Charlene Goto, and our engineer, Tatiana Zamis, and thank you for joining us on today's show. I'm Rob Connybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, and you've been listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.